Welcome to Future Forecast, a podcast about technology, leadership, and sustainability with leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we'll be talking about predicting the future of Brexit, the US election, China, and work with Dr. Chris Kutarna. Chris is the co-author of Age of Discovery, Navigating the Storms of Our Second Renaissance, a best-selling, internationally acclaimed book. He holds a doctorate in politics from Oxford University, where he mapped the political change of China's emerging middle class. Chris is best known as a predictor of the future. He publicly foresaw Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. His essays appear everywhere from The Guardian to Time magazine to Vogue. In 2018, he was rated one of the global top 10 thinkers on the future of work by London Speaker Bureau. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. You know, I'll, uh, you know I, I sound so much more put together when you uh, give me a bio introduction like that. Oh, very humble of you. Well, you are pretty put together <laughs> based off of what I've read on the... Reality always feels more confused. <laughs> well, actually, we're going to try to debunk a little bit of the reality uh, today. So, Chris, you're famous for excellently communicating the perhaps unwritten truth that we can predict the future with a lens from the past. And history in some way or another will repeat itself. Now, I want to understand how you applied that when you were able to predict the outcome of the United Kingdom's 2016 referendum on EU membership, popularly known as Brexit. Hmm. Well, you know, so thank you for, for, for that. And I guess to be clear on my position, I don't know if history repeats, but I think it does rhyme. And what I mean by that is there are some things that endure, even as the world changes, uh, like human nature and, and like, you know, some of the the stimuli that we respond to and the ways that we respond to them. And so, you know, if we do kind of step back and, and try to understand the bigger picture of what's going on, it's, it is possible to, you know, have some better hypotheses about how we're going to respond to these events. And, and one thing I think that's pretty clear in past times of rapid change, like um, in Age of Discovery, I compare a lot of the present day to, to the historical Renaissance, is that uh, we tend to do a really poor job of updating our maps, you know, updating our, our mental assumptions as the world around us changes. And, and when you kind of clue into that, when you recognize that we're sort of looking at the world with a lens that is pretty clearly outdated, then I think it becomes a lot easier to see where we're making our mistakes in judging what's going to come next and how, how maybe we can, we can come up with more accurate forecasts. And I mean, Brexit, Trump, 2016, those were for people who like me who were looking at the world with the question of, you know, where might we be failing to see things coming because we're looking through an outdated lens. I think that those were, were obvious places to, to start investigating, at least. And was there any specific things that you were looking at from the past that you thought, well, I, I can recognize some patterns here. This is probably where we're going. So I. Uh, yes and yes. I mean, they're both specific things in the past and specific things in the present. I think that, you know, you put them together and it it led me to look at the likelihood of Brexit and the likelihood of a Trump presidency, I guess, very differently than a lot of people were looking at it. And in terms of the past, I mean, if you go back 500 years to what was going on in Europe at the advent of the printing press, you know, when these voyages of discovery were, were transforming our understanding of the world, this was a moment when the seemingly impossible happened. You know, when you look at some of the uh, like political and social revolutions that took place, uh, I mean, you had 
in 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 Germany, this this uh, firebrand cleric, you know Martin Luther, who is railing against the establishment elites uh, and saying that you know these faraway people in Rome don't represent you, and and they're corrupt and giving indulgences around to all of their supporters. I mean, and there had been uh, people throughout the history of the Catholic Church who had made that argument, but for some reason, uh, when Martin Luther made those arguments. Uh, they spread like wildfire across the continent. And the reason was the new, the new medium of, of print that allowed his ideas and his critiques to be, you know, uh, taken off of that, that church door in Gutenberg and written down and spread widely across the continent and, 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 and to change the politics of a continent and, you know, break in half the ultimate authority in Europe that had sort of stood as a, as a coherent whole for, for the last several centuries. So, I mean, that was a historic game changer in the politics of Europe. And, you know, from that lens, if you fast forward to 2016, I mean, first of all, I think it would, then one starts to have a very different outlook on the possibility of significant political realignment in our own time, whether it had to do with sort of a realignment in the future of Europe or, or a realignment in terms of uh, democratic and republican politics in the United States. And so, I mean, the first thing that I think that the historical lens does is just help us to have a much wider sense of possibility around the present. And then, you know, when we take that wider sense of possibility to the present and, and looked at our politics, I mean, one thing that I think, you know, should have been immediately obvious was that in a time of such... Uh, just tremendous upheaval, our map for understanding the politics of Europe and the politics of the United States was, you know, almost comically oversimplified, right? It's sort of like this, this single horizontal line with, uh, you know, left on one side and right on the other. And the idea that all of our debates belonged on that linear spectrum and could be plotted on that spectrum. It was, it was I think, our, our belief in that map that caused so many people to just uh, have a hard time imagining the possibility of a positive vote for the Leave campaign in Brexit or for uh, the election of Donald Trump, just because those two possibilities didn't fit anywhere on that linear spectrum. And so for me, a, a big part of, of seeing the possibility of those two outcomes was recognizing that that linear spectrum was wrong, that we needed to add new dimensions to our political map in order to see where to plot these possibilities. So I guess I, I kind of consider you almost like a, not psychic, but I'm obviously curious, and I think many people are, because there's so much going on around Brexit right now. And then knowing what you know and have witnessed in the aftermath of failed EU deals, what do you predict will be the ultimate outcome of Brexit now? Well, you know, ultimate is, when, when do we count the ultimate? Is it next year? Or are we talking in 2050, right? I mean, I, <laughs> because, because I think that, you know, what the events of the last two years have really shown is that pretty much across the, the liberal democratic world, we need to get far more ambitious about political renewal and political reform, you know, and maybe the ultimate outcome of Brexit in, in this country, the United Kingdom, where I'm, I'm sitting in the moment, is going to be a, a realignment of the political map, you know, a recognition that having, you know, a party of the left and the party of the right just doesn't represent the, um, the questions and the divisions sort of within the body politic today. And, you know, right now, a lot of the gridlock 
of Brexit is that you've got, you know, the Conservative Party internally divided between those who want to stay and those who want to leave. And you've got the, the Labour Party internally divided between those who want to stay and those who want to leave. And so these these parties that are meant to represent the big choices that society wants to struggle between, they themselves aren't able to represent clear choices because their own caucus is divided. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, look forward 10 or 20 years from now, you've got a, a party of the open uh, and you've got a party of the closed because so much of the just political changes of the last couple of decades have been about reshuffling how the population feels in terms of whether they are, you know, more comfortable with or more uncomfortable with increasingly open borders for capital and goods and, and people and ideas. And, and, and so I think we're going to see a pretty fundamental just realignment in, in what the political party spectrum is. Or, or maybe I should say, I hope that we do. I, I hope that we do. Because as you mentioned off the top, I mean, my, my formal research background is on the politics of China. And it, it's kind of, you know, it's ironic to say it, but China has been much more aggressive about uh, political reform, political system reform over the past 40 years than, you know, the advanced liberal democracies. You know, it, it seems that, you know, we've got this kind of sense that, that the project is complete, right? We've, we've, we've figured it all out. And, and now it's just a matter of operating this well-oiled, perfect p politics machine. When the reality is, I mean, the world is changing so much, has already, is going to continue to, how technology is transforming the public sphere and the conversations we have and the divisions we see at a constitutional level. I think we need to be looking at our politics and and, and seeing uh, the challenge and the opportunity to to make some really big changes to how democracy operates. So you mentioned uh, technology and division, and I want to get a little bit into that. I'm I'm in New York now, and uh, uh, a few months after you were able to predict Brexit, you were able to predict the outcome of the 2016 election, Donald Trump as president of the United States, and. I'll admit, I was completely shocked, uh, and I don't think I was alone, perhaps because seemingly everyone around me, popular media included, at least the, the media that I read, predicted that it would be, I mean, nearly impossible, but yet he won. Can you explain why this happened? I mean, why were so many people convinced that Hillary Clinton would win when she didn't? And what does this behavior or false conviction tell us about our society today? Mm -hmm. So uh, two separate questions and both really important. I think the simple analysis of this. So if you imagine in your head that sort of left versus right, you know, single political line, I think the problem that we had was that Trump didn't fit on that line anywhere. I mean, you know, was he touting the Republican line? Not really in some cases, but in some ways it was much more, you know, what, uh, you know, Democrats have been talking about, you know, trade is bad and we want to tear up trade agreements. I mean, when have you heard a Republican say that? To say nothing about his just flouting all of the conventions of how politicians are meant to behave, but but his, his policies just didn't fit anywhere. But if you add a second dimension to that line, you know, this sort of vertical dimension of open versus closed, uh, then immediately, I think his his path to victory became clear. You know, he occupied the closed right, and that was his base. And if if he if he stood for office, he was going to turn out that base in big, big numbers, because they just hadn't seen that kind of offer in a long time. And when he won the Republican nomination, just by default of how 
U.S. party politics works, he won the, the open right, if you will, the, the establishment Republicans, just by default, just as part of the structure of how the political system works. And then the interesting thing is when you went to kind of the left side of the ledger, and you realize that in that closed left quadrant, there were a lot of disaffected Democrats, you know, people who had been told that, you know, globalization is a good thing and it's going to float all boats. And in 2016 felt, you know, after the financial crisis and, and everything that had happened and how wages were stagnating, that uh, they had basically been lied to and that uh, their world wasn't going to get any better. And so some of them, even though they're traditional Democrats, they, they were swayed to the, the more closed world argument that, that, that Trump was making. Uh, and then you were left with the open left, people who were so anti-Trump that, you know, more of them turned out against him than maybe, you know, against any previous uh, Republican candidate. But you looked at that board and you would see how, you know, a Trump message had, you know, had at least some greater or lesser appeal to at least three squares of that board. And I think any kind of dispassionate analyst would say, you know, there, there's a real path to victory here. Now, is he guaranteed to win? No, we got to see what happens on election day. But is it within the realm of possibility? Clearly. Hmm. And so that's your second question. So why don't we see these things? I mean, why is it that we fail to see that? And, you know, you focus on the Trump example, but it's a far, it's a far more troubling question than just that. I mean, roll back 10 years ago, you know, a lot of us had thought that uh, globalization had diversified away financial risk, right? And then we had the financial crisis. Yeah, thought that Brexit was never going to happen and that Trump was unelectable. Also thought that globalization was irreversible. You know, after Tiananmen in 89, you know, we thought that democratization was everywhere inevitable. And it wasn't so long ago that Harvey Weinstein was, you know, one of the most respected men in Hollywood. And all of those things have, have now proven untrue. So what's really interesting is that we are all right now trying to navigate in a world and to deal with uh, a world of consequences, none of which were really in our minds 10 years ago, as these are the major things that are going to shape the future. You know, so, so what is it about how we look out at the world and look at the future that we, we, we so fundamentally fail to see? Not not that, you know, we, we assign a lower probability than we should. It's like, no, we don't even see these things as remote possibilities, the things that actually do happen and actually do become the, the, the main stuff that we're struggling to adapt to. I mean, that is, I think, the sobering question. Mm. And what would you answer that? To? What would you answer? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the trillion dollar question, right? I, I think there's a lot. There's a lot in terms of what's the answer to that. But I think that maybe the most fundamental takeaway is, is to recognize that, that we do operate with maps, right? Assumptions. I, I like to think with a metaphor of maps, of mental maps, that, that, that help us to make sense of the world and help us to figure out what we should do. And, and all of those maps have been formed in the past. And so that means just logically that, you know, they expire. As, as the terrain changes. And when the terrain is changing quickly, as it is right now, then, then they're expiring more quickly. So we need to get good at identifying, you know, so what is the map I'm navigating by? You know, what are, the, what are the core assumptions that I'm working with? And it's an easy question to ask. It's actually, a, a, it's maybe one of the most, most difficult questions to answer because these, these basic assumptions are so 
are so fundamental to how we just understand our reality that we're, we're not conscious that we're making them. I mean, I think back in my book 500 years ago, you know, Copernicus transforms our understanding of the, of, of the world, of, of the universe by proposing that, you know, maybe the sun is the center of the universe and not, not the earth. Uh, and to us nowadays, that seems obvious because it's the idea we grew up with. Uh, but try to imagine what it was like 500 years ago, somebody saying that, you know, maybe the earth isn't the center of the universe. Maybe we revolve around the sun. It's totally contradicted by, you know, the evidence of our own eyes every morning. I see the sun come up over the horizon. I see it disappear over the horizon. Why would I think anything but it's turning around us? I mean, in, in fact, 500 years later, I mean, we still talk about sunrise and sunset, right? We, we never talk about earth spin, even though that's what's happening. You know, we are spinning away from the sun. It's not the sun that is setting. So becoming aware of our assumptions and challenging them is probably the, the single hardest thing that we have to do. How practically do we do it? I mean, I, I think I know what some of the answers are, but the, even that doesn't make it any easier, right? So one of the answers has got to be diversity, right? That's why we need to convene diversity and, and real diversity. You know, the mixing that is missing in society, whether it is politically or economically or socially, to, 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 to force a, a better awareness of the truths that I, I thought were true, uh, but it turns out that they are only true for me, so that we can start to work on that. And then, of course, you know, the other part of the answer is, is somehow we need to create emptiness. Uh, we need to create some space in, in our own self-awareness. We need to kind of, you know, go on a journey away from how we ordinarily look at things and and come back to the same place with a transformed perspective all of that sounds right to me you know how how concretely we we realize that i think there are there are many answers and uh i don't know if we have time on <laughs> on a short podcast to, to get into some of them it kind of depends on what level you want to you want to talk about it i think there there's there there are personal answers there are policy answers there are organizational answers to this question i guess so we can just tell our listeners to read your books and follow you online uh to do that because you're right we don't have time in time yeah, through the right. entire podcast but it, but it is interesting i mean i, I you know all the the writing conversations that i do with diverse people that this is a universal problem we encountered in our personal lives these these paradoxes that we don't know how to solve we encountered at a at a societal level right i mean the paradoxes of of growth versus sustainability of um you know wanting to um improve healthcare outcomes for everyone versus the rising cost of healthcare as as society ages um and we encountered in organizations right in 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 our businesses where there is all of this change underway and we know that we need to change and yet it's hard to change and even in the midst of change we have to continue to stay organized and 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 to deliver profits and results and and so i think that you know all of us in our roles we're, we're struggling with this time that we're in uh we're struggling with how do we how do we lead through it you know how do we challenge our assumptions and change them and you know we're one of sort of my evolving areas of research, one of the things that I, I feel seems to be consistently a challenge across all sorts of domains of society is um, our understanding of leadership. I think that one of the reasons that a lot of us feel stuck, feel that we don't know how to move forward, is that 
leadership in our heads, you know, one of our core assumptions is that leadership is about going forward, is about knowing the answer and getting people to follow, is about setting the direction and getting people to follow that direction. And so much of our honest circumstance nowadays is that we're lost. We, we don't know where we are. We don't know where we're going. We, you know, we're, we're convinced that the maps we're navigating by that tell us where we are and where we need to go don't do either of those two things. <laughs> and so how do we lead? Exactly. So, but is this, is this like truly something unique for our period of time now? Or has this, is this kind of just a general underpinning of society? So we are, we are in an empirically distinctive moment. Unique is a strong word, but this is a distinctive moment. You know, take, take the advent of digitization, for example, which, which is transforming how we process information and communicate. In, in 100,000 years of civilization, there's only been four information revolutions. The first one was speech, the second was writing, the third was print, and now digital. Right? So these kind of moments, uh, technologically, don't happen a lot. You look at where we're at demographically, you know, sort of between 1950 and, 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 and today, we've gone through the fastest population doubling ever on this planet, and, and likely the last because it's not likely that the population will ever double again. Uh, and so we are in the midst of a demographic transition from, from growth, from unprecedented rapid growth to population stabilization and maybe even stagnation and decline. So there are some things underway in the human condition that are distinctive about the present. And I think that that, that mean that we are going to have to figure out new ways of, of leading, you know, ways of leading that aren't so much about, I know the solution and everyone follow me and let's go forward. And that are more about, I am stuck with this problem. Who else shares this problem? And can we all come together around this problem and find some new ways of moving that don't involve knowing where to go and don't necessarily involve going forward? And I think that's that's going to be a pretty fundamental, you know, challenge for organizations and, and our politics and our culture to, to to find these these new ways of leading, not not through solutions, but through problems. Yeah, I think that's completely true. And I want to get uh, I want to touch upon uh, the, the future of work and, and business. But first, I need to ask you a question that I find myself and as I'm listening to you as well, I'm, I'm wondering, oh, God, I should open my, my realm of possibilities here. But I find myself desperately hoping uh, for an, a, a, a very specific answer to this question. But do you think that Donald Trump is going to win the next election in 2020? <laughs> oh, I, I feel like, uh, you know, having, having uh, scored two for two, I should retire from the, uh, from the <laughs> political prediction game. Because, you know, of course, the thing, the thing is that, you know, what, what enabled me to make the prediction past is no longer true, which is, you know, now everybody's caught up to the reality of these possibilities. And so, you know, just like the Brexit referendum, probably just like the, the 2016 election, if you were to rerun it today, you'd get a different result. Because people understand, people just have a different sense of what the real stakes and the real possibilities are. Do you think that accounts for the same in the election? So, I mean, I guess the political scientist in me, you know, always gives, you kind of, like I, I'm a big football fan and, and, you know, you always spot three points to the home team. There's a home field advantage, right? So if you're the incumbent president, then you, you hold, 
you hold all of the cards. And I think that the Democrats are still struggling with, you know, wringing, wringing hands around what I think is a really, you know, I don't know what the answer to this is. Do you uh, continue to sort of play politics by the politics of, of the past? Or do you adopt the politics of this this new player who has a new way? I mean, you see it you see it in sort of the attempts to hold Donald Trump to account today. Mm. You you get you get people asking questions. Did you do this? Did you do that? And um, but they were doing that before the election too. Yeah. So my point is, you know, Donald Trump didn't ask questions. Right? He didn't ask. Did uh, uh, was Barack Obama born in the United States? <laughs> he just spread the story that he wasn't. Right. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you see Democrats not willing. And I mean, and like I say, I'm not advocating it, but but it's a real distinct. It's a it's a glaring distinction in how politics is done. You don't see Democrats. Well, not really anymore saying that, you know, you did collude with the Russians or your uh, tax returns show that you have never donated money to charity or your tax returns show that you did you know, accept money from Russians or, you know. They're asking the questions rather than stating lies or assumptions that they can't back up because they know that they would do damage. And so, I mean, it really, I, I know you just want a straight answer from me, but. <laughs> you can tell. Yeah, I just, I, I just want you to tell me no and I'll be fine. No, I know. I know that you want me to tell you no. But do you think maybe that I'm wrong, that it will be yes? So it, it's really a question of what do people respond to? I mean, in 2016, people responded to the stories uh, that Donald Trump told, quite unrelated from their own interest and what reality might be. And I think that that makes it very difficult to have confidence in the ability of Democratic candidates to persuade people to their point of view to vote for them. And if you can't persuade, then, then it really does become a kind of popularity contest, a celebrity contest. And it's not about who has the better arguments, but who has the, the greater charismatic power to just build a movement of people behind them um, who you know, aren't really all that invested in their ideas uh, and more are just invested in their faith behind, behind the person. And if that's how, if that's how 2020 is going to be, uh, won and lost. Well, we don't yet know who that representative for the Democrats is going to be. And, you know, are they going to have as a representative the the one who is making the arguments or the one who has sort of the, the greatest fan following? So what I'm hearing that you're saying is that it kind of depends on what we see on the other side, who who is going to be his opponent that, and it all depends on what kind of a person that is. And that maybe isn't clear quite yet? I, I, I think that's right. If it's um, a kind of a Biden versus, versus a Buttigieg, it, it becomes a very different campaign. You know, an, an Elizabeth Warren versus, uh, I'm trying to think of what's the good. I was, I, I was so good and alliterative on that first pair. I can't think of another person whose last name starts with W and is on the other side of Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's okay. We, uh, we're running out of time, and I, I really want to get into the, the last question, too. On the note of technology, uh, and we've been discussing that and, and its uh, consequences and benefits to society, but using your own method of predicting the future through the past, it's relatively easy, I guess, to look at past industrial revolutions to accept the fact that we're definitely entering into a new age of work. And we've already seen how robots can relieve us from the physically demanding jobs, but this time, in addition to developing in an exponential speed, they're also relieving us of our cognitive tasks, which, I mean, whatever we find hard, robots find easy and vice versa. And and then I read a report from the World Economic Forum that predicted a gain of, I think it was 133 million jobs to the technological potential and then the loss of 70 million, so a net gain. Now, what do you think are the most important trends to be considering as we await the evolution of work? Well, I mean, I think that there's the mistake right there is to await the evolution of work. And I think that one thing that's pretty clear about the future work at the moment is that the agenda so far has largely been driven by the automators, right? By the by the organizations who are looking at the opportunities to replace labor with capital. And that's partly what's creating the anxiety and the story that a lot of sort of the good middle class jobs that, you know, uh, supported people in the industrial age uh, might disappear as we as we enter into a knowledge age or a machine age. I, I, I think that maybe the the biggest trend or, or determinant of what the future of work looks like is going to be the extent to which we can take a sort of like a, 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 a more top-down approach to imagining what that future web might be. Let, let me explain what I mean by that. I mean, the bottom-up approach is to sort of look at the micro incentives and how, you know, every, every, every company that employs people right now that, you know, could substitute a robot or an algorithm now or in the next few years have a strong incentive to make that substitution. And when you take that incentive at the micro level of each individual business and you add it up across the whole economy, you, you kind of end up with an Armageddon of jobs. Or we could take just a completely different angle on the future work we might build and, and, and kind of look at it this way. I mean, there are across, across the planet, there's about 5 billion people of, of working age alive today. Uh, about 3 billion of them have a job. About 1.3 billion of them have a job that affords them a living. And only about 200 million people in the world have a job that they personally find fulfilling, that they feel is a good fit to their skills, and that helps them to sort of develop and flourish in the way that they want to. So 200 million people, yeah, that's a pretty small proportion of the global workforce. And yet those, those 200 million people have, you know, managed to drive the creation of a world economy that's, you know, in excess of $100 trillion. So, you know, we've built this giant global economy with only a fraction of the, the human capital potential in the world today. You know, what if we could use, you know, all of this wonderful uh, robotic and algorithmic technology to dramatically increase the number of people in the world who are doing fulfilling work? You know, what if we could turn that 200 million into 400 million or, or 600 million or a billion people? How dramatically might that grow the world economy? And I don't hear anybody, very few people talking about the future of work that way, planning toward the future of work that way, 
But I think that if we can get more people engaged in that conversation, then I think it will it will start to become just a radically different conversation around uh, what we could afford ourselves through this technology in in a new world of work. I absolutely love that perspective. Uh, it's it was fascinating to listen to you break it down because uh, it, I think it's so it's so true. And I would have loved to uh, talk to you more about that, but I'm very respectful of your time, and I know we only have two minutes left. And uh, before before I let you go, um, we have three standard questions. Um, so, Chris, if you could give your 20 year old self one piece of advice, what would you tell you? <laughs> Let's see, 20 years itself, that would be, I guess, Am- I was, I was going to say buy Amazon, but <laughs> <laughs> buy Google, I don't even think Google existed. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, the advice I would give to myself is um, trust yourself. I don't really think looking back, I would have done much differently, but I, I didn't need to agonize over it as much as I did. You know, you make all these big choices in life and, and when you're happy with them, you do wish you could just go back and say, yeah, trust yourself. Make those big bets. What's a book, a podcast, or anything else informational that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Oh, well, can I recommend my own? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so this is like, this is completely non-commercial thing, but uh, a friend and I have started a podcast called The Atlas Project, which I think you can find along major major platforms. And And honestly, it didn't begin as a podcast. We get together on the phone kind of once a week or so, and we just help each other ideate and to kind of process everything that's happening, you know, in between our ears and as it relates to the world around us. Um, and um, my co-host, let's say now on, on this podcast, his name is Scott Jones. And what is amazing about Scott is he has, he's one of those annoying people with a photographic memory. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, uh, but he's also... Um, uh, so a, a, a theologian and a political theorist. And so he has pretty much the entire history of Western political thought in his head, which is just such an amazing resource, right? Because I'll oh, say, oh, you know, like we're talking about, you know, um, you know, truth in, in democratic politics today. And he'll say, oh, yeah, you know, Hegel said something about that. And, and Aristotle always used to say, and, you know, we, this comes back to what St. Augustine wrote about which, you know, it's just incredible for me personally. So, so we've kind of open sourced that and turned it into a podcast called The Atlas Project. I don't know how many listeners we have because it's not like we're advertising it or something, but it's, it's my best hour of the week. And so I invite you to, to enjoy it too. Cool. Well, hopefully you'll get some more listeners after, after this. Now, where should people go to follow you? So the best place is my website, um, K-U-T-A-R-N-A.net. Um, I mean, I do tweet and other social media things, but but I'm a long form person, right? I'm a kind of introvert. I like to process things. And so I, I write uh, essays and blog posts and um, those go up on my website and they only kind of gradually then filter out into other mediums. So if you want to kind of, you know, get it, get it directly from me. Uh, and correspond with me. My my website is the best place to find me. Cool. Yeah, I can I can tell that you are a long form person, uh, and I mean that in the best way possible. But <laughs> you have a lot of depth to you uh, to your analysis, and this has just been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Isabel, it's been a pleasure. Cool. Thank you for listening to Future Forecast. Tune in next week for more exciting insights on the future. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness. Please share the podcast with anyone you think may find it interesting, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. 